You turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 as we continue our series. What a joy it is to be together, to sing His praises, and then to celebrate our, the ongoing work of Jesus Christ. He has saved and He continues to save a people for Himself. Colossians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses uh, 9 through 11. Clothes make the man. Clothes make the man. Most people think Mark Twain came up with this quote, but it actually goes way back further, as far back as the Greek writer Homer in the 7th century BC. Clothes make the man. Clothing does tell you a lot about a person. A soldier wears a uniform. An athlete, however, would not wear a soldier's uniform when competing. A prisoner wears an orange striped or solid jumpsuit, but a judge would not be wearing the same thing as a prisoner. Clothing can tell you a lot about a person. A Christian is identified by their clothing. A Christian, we're identified by our clothing. So let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that we would be given fresh faith, fresh strength by your Spirit to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Help us as your people, as we, have, as, as we have put on Christ, that we would continue to put on Christ day by day, that we would be transformed into the image of your Son, and that that would lead us together to love one another, that we would be a unified body, unified under the lordship and headship of our Creator and Savior, Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. So for the Christian as well, clothes make the man. Clothes make the man. When you have put on Christ, Christ is your covering. He is your identity. As we heard from Shauna this morning, the old Shauna is gone. The new Shauna is found in Christ. Shauna has put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you too have put on the Lord Jesus Christ as a covering, as your clothing, as your garments. And when Christ recreates, He unifies us under His Lordship. When Christ recreates, He unifies us under His Lordship. I'm going to break this down, this main idea, into three parts. Number one, new creation in Christ. Number two, new image in Christ. And number three, a new unity in Christ. So we have new creation, new image, and new unity all in Christ. So number one, new creation in Christ. Let's look at verse 10. Have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The ESV translates the first part of verse 10 in this way, have put on the new self. The word self is actually implied in the translation. The actual Greek is literally have put on the new. If you just take the Greek apart and look at those Greek words, it's have put on the new. Translators have supplied self 
to smooth things out. That works, but I actually prefer the word man. You could also use the word man to supply in there to smooth things out. Have put on the new man. And the reason I prefer the word man is that it ties in better with verse 9, which does have the Greek word for man, anthropos. You have put off the old anthropos, put off the old man. Incidentally, anthropos is where we get the word anthropology, the study of man. And the word man is often used in Scripture for mankind, generally speaking, all of us in the human race. You remember from Genesis, God says, let us make man in our image. Man referring to the creation of Adam and Eve, the human race. So if we go with the word man, Paul says we have put on the new man. We have put on the new man. You might be wondering, what does that mean exactly? What does it mean to put on the new man, put on that new self? New man means new creation. New creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. In Christ, you're a new creation, a new man, something totally different. But if you know your own history, you know your past, that, that wasn't always the case. There was once a time where you weren't in Christ. You were not in Christ, but you were in the old man, Adam. And if you're not a Christian, we want to just take a moment to thank you for being here. Thank you for joining our time of Sunday celebration, celebrating what the Lord Jesus has done for us. But we want you to know that while you have life and breath, there's, there's hope, there's opportunity for you. But that won't, won't always be the case. The Bible clearly teaches that it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Our life is a mist, a puff of smoke that, that, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You and I will be dead a lot longer than we will be alive. And so Jesus told us, unless you're born again, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's nothing more relevant for us to think about than what comes next after death, because death is a reality. So Jesus says, in other words, unless you are recreated, unless you put on the new man, the new self, you won't make it to heaven. And you might be here wondering, why does anyone need to be born again? Doesn't everyone eventually find their way to God? Aren't we all striving and making our way to God? Won't we all reach heaven eventually, finding our own path? But God tells us differently. You see, we've inherited a genetic disease from our ancestor Adam. It's a disease so serious and so deadly that it kills with 100% success rate, a 100% mortality rate. Everyone who gets this disease dies, and that disease is sin. Where did that disease come from? How did Adam get it? Well, Adam was given one rule to obey in the garden paradise, in that perfect garden paradise. He was given one rule to show his love and loyalty to the God who created him and gave him everything to enjoy. Adam was commanded not to eat from the forbidden tree. But rather than submit to God and show his love and loyalty to his creator, Adam wanted to overthrow God, throw God off the throne and take God's place. And so Adam committed the first sin, and for that act of cosmic treason, he would die. 
When Adam would die physically, his body would grow old and sick and die. He would die spiritually, condemned to eternal punishment and separation from God in hell. He would die emotionally through never-ending conflict, first with his wife and then conflict that we all experience as human beings. But Adam is our representative head. That means in Adam, we also sinned and died in him. So as Adam sinned and died, we sinned and died in him. Now you might be wondering, wait a second, that's not fair. Why do I have to suffer because of what Adam did? That's Adam. How about me? Well, we like to think of ourselves as autonomous creatures, autonomous human beings. We choose where we live, what we do, who our friends are. But we're not as autonomous, we're not as autonomous and independent as we think we are. How many of you here chose your parents? How many of you chose when you would be born? Where you would be born? Under what circumstances you would be born? Imagine if you were born 500 years ago in the mountains of Tibet or in the highlands of Mongolia. You wouldn't be sitting here enjoying the things you enjoy today. God chose when you would be born, where you would be born. And so God chose Adam to be our representative head, the representative head of all humanity. And so each one of us belong by default and automatically to the old man Adam, to the old humanity. But here's the good news that's also not fair. Even though you did nothing to earn it, Christ is freely offered to you. Jesus Christ is offered as a free gift of grace to be received by faith. As I've heard one pastor teach, that's why Jesus chose the metaphor of birth. Just as you contributed nothing to your birth, you contributed nothing to your own salvation. So if you haven't yet done so, receive Christ today. Come to Jesus today. Repent from your sin and trust in Christ alone today. Follow him today. Many people think of Christianity as a self-improvement program. You take you, a pretty decent you, and then make yourself a better you when you add Christ on top of a pretty decent, pretty good life. There's a project run by a non-governmental organization in Thailand that gives you the opportunity to immerse yourself in different faith traditions for a month for a small fee. So for a small fee, they offer Buddhist monk for a month. For a small fee, they offer Muslim for a month or Rasta Roots spiritual experience for a month. You don't have to be all in, just try it out. Get something out of this spiritual experience. Enrich your portfolio of life experiences. But Christ is the opposite. He's the opposite. He's not something you try out just to enhance your life. He comes to radically change you, to transform you, to raise you up from the dead. The theological term for that is regeneration. Regeneration, transformed into a new creation. And when Jesus has come into your life and radically transformed you, a metamorphosis has happened. The old man in Adam is completely discarded thrown away, put to death. The old you is put to death. That old life of sin and selfishness and personal autonomy. And in Christ, if you are in Christ now, we live for God's glory. We live out of an overflow, out of a love for God because of what He's done for us. And now we live by God's Word. It is a complete transformation, a complete revolution 
And this is that radical break that we've experienced in Christ. This is what it means to have put on the new man, that new self. So that's number one, new creation in Christ. Number two, we see new image in Christ. New image in Christ. Let's look back again at verse 10 in Colossians chapter 3. Have put on the new self, that's the new creation, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The creator here is God the Father, the first person in the Godhead, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The image of the Father, the image of the creator is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God and the second person in the Trinity. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God so that if you see Jesus, you see the Father. And this new man, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, a new man is being renewed after the image of its creator, to be renewed more and more like Jesus Christ. You might be wondering, is Paul saying we need to renew the new? How do you renew what's new? What does Paul mean that this new creation is being renewed? Well, we need to be renewed because we not, we're not yet perfected. Theologians use the term already and not yet. Already and not yet. We've, we're already a new creation in Christ, bearing the new image in Christ. But we're not yet perfected. We're not yet, we've not yet arrived. That means our image is still being renewed day by day. For those whom he, this is God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8.29. So if you're here this morning and God has foreknown you and predestined you for eternal life, then he also destined you to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That means you should be able to point to ways that you are more like Christ today than you were a month ago. Ways that you are more like Christ today than you were a year ago. This change, sometimes very slow, is the evidence that we belong to Jesus. You see, the Christian life isn't a life set on cruise control, not a life where we just set it and forget it. It's a life of striving. It's a life of activity, a life where we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So those of us here who have put on Jesus Christ must continually put him on. A soldier must put on his uniform every morning as he gets ready for battle. And so we put on Christ because we have already put on Christ. In other words, we put on because we've already put on. So we put on because we've already put on. But Jesus didn't tell us to be renewed and to put on this new self day by day on our own. Not only was there Good Friday, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, not only was there Resurrection Sunday on the third day, there was Pentecost. Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. Jesus promised to give us the helper, the Spirit of truth, to dwell with His people forever. According to Isaiah 11.2, He's the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge. Think of all those names of the Holy Spirit. Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, the Spirit of knowledge, and this Spirit now dwells within each one of us all of us who are in Christ. And as we behold the glory of the Lord and set our minds on things above, we're transformed. As we fix our gaze on Jesus, 
on where Jesus is, on His character, His loveliness, His power, where He is in heaven now, our future glory, then we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Over time, we're transformed. As we gaze on things above, as we seek, on, seek those things that are above where Christ is, we become more and more like Jesus. We become more and more like that which we gaze at. And that all comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Sam Storms writes, God's aim in us and our aim through Him is to think like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to feel and act and speak like Jesus. That's the goal as we are being renewed day by day, that we might more and more think the way Jesus thinks, love the way Jesus loves, feel and act and speak the way Jesus does. When you get cut, blood flows out of your body, blood flows out of your wound. My boys recently learned how to buy, ride bikes without training wheels. But sometimes they're riding over some rough terrain, over some, something that's slippery or maybe some sand. They slip and fall. And both my boys, they've skinned their knees while riding their bikes. And when that knee is busted open, blood flows. Thankfully, not a lot, but you can see it. Spiritually speaking, if you are busted open, Jesus should flow out. Jesus should flow out. He must flow out because he's your life. Jesus is the life flowing in our veins. And Jesus was perfectly filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those fruits of the Spirit, perfectly embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ, those are ours in Him. In Him. And so we need to ask we need to seek. We need to knock. We need to be filled, church, more and more with the Spirit that ultimately Jesus would increase and we would decrease. And so that when people see you, they see Jesus. They see a new image being renewed day by day, more and more like Jesus Christ. So number one, new creation in Christ, which leads to number two, new image in Christ. And now, finally, number three, a new unity in Christ. A new unity in Christ. This gets back to our first point, new creation. When we put on the new man, we belong to a new humanity under a new head. We used to belong to the old man, Adam, but now we belong to the new man, Jesus Christ. America is a land of immigrants. My parents immigrated from Taiwan to the United States over 50 years ago. They gave up their Taiwanese citizenship and took on American citizenship. My siblings and I are direct beneficiaries of their decision to move and immigrate from their home country to this country, for which we are very grateful. If you're in Christ, something similar happens, but on a much grander scale. We once belonged to the kingdom of Adam, but now we belong to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We once held one passport, now we hold another. We once were citizens of one country, now we're citizens of another. Let's look at verse 11. Here, in this country, in this kingdom, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. 
Jesus takes all these diverse, radically different people, such as Greeks, Jews, barbarians, Scythians, and unites them under one body, a new unity in Christ. And we see that the church in Colossae was a diverse church. Colossae was near the crossroads of major roads, much like our city, which is a hub for education and the economy. But in Christ, there is now one unified body across all these differences. And the first difference would be Greek and Jew that we see listed here. Greek and Jew. In the New Testament, the word, the term Greek is used as shorthand for non-Jew, someone who wasn't descended from the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Jews, they prided themselves in their religious heritage. The Israelites enjoyed adoption, glory, covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, Romans 9, 4. So they viewed their ethnic and religious lineage as superior, better than the lineage of other people. And they had good reasons. The Jews were God's chosen people. But here's the thing. None of that matters apart from Christ. None of that matters apart from Christ. Paul, who was a Jew himself, turns the tables here. Normally when we see these groups listed, it's the Jew listed first. It's usually Jew and Greek. The gospel is preached to the Jews and the Greeks in the book of Acts. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jew, Greek, Jew, Greek. That's a typical pattern. But take a look at the text. It's Greek, Jew. Paul switches it up. Why does he do that? Why does he switch up the order here? Well, we don't know for sure. Maybe there were more Greeks than Jews in the church in Colossae. Or maybe Paul was intentionally highlighting Jesus Christ as the great equalizer, that those privileges that the Jews enjoyed are nothing compared to Jesus himself, which is freely offered to all people, including Greeks. So there's no room for Jews to look down on Greeks. But the same goes for Greeks. The Greeks, they took pride in their heritage also, in their wisdom, their philosophy. They might have been conquered by the Romans militarily, but they conquered the Romans culturally. Greek language and culture was the dominant force in the Roman Empire. Rome, the government, the official government, used Latin, but everyone else spoke Greek. Greek was so common, so widespread during that time that even the New Testament was written in, guess what? The New Testament was written in Greek. So the Greeks were proud. They loved their language. They loved their culture. They loved their heritage. And they looked down on all other people who weren't Greeks, especially the Jewish people. But the gospel destroys any ethnocentrism. The Jewish believer in Christ is equal to the Greek brother in Christ. The Jews aren't closer to God because of their Jewishness, and the Greeks aren't closer to God because of their Greekness. Both are equal in Christ. There's no racial distinctions, no racial hierarchies in the church. The next group are the circumcised and uncircumcised. Circumcision was the mark of Jewish separateness. It was a sign of their religion, and the Jews took pride in their religion. But in Christ, there's also no religious distinctions. It doesn't matter if you grew up or if your background was Catholic or Protestant. It doesn't matter if your background was Muslim or Buddhist. If you were 
religious or atheist. Religion on its own can't save. Only faith in Christ saves. Only faith in Christ matters. And this was the big gospel revolution we'd see take place in the New Testament, and especially the book of Acts. Some in the church argued that Gentile Christians, such as Greeks, they had to become Jews to be saved. They had to get circumcised and keep the law of Moses. But the church stayed true to the gospel in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. The apostles said that the gospel isn't faith in Jesus plus become a Jew, plus keep these laws, plus keep these dietary restrictions. The gospel is simply faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. And then we move on to barbarian and Scythian. Barbarians were Gentiles who didn't know Greek language and culture and were looked down on as crude and uncivilized. The Greeks divided all humanity into two categories. You had the Greeks and then you had barbarians. So incidentally, the Jews would fall into the barbarian category, according to the Greeks. So there, there were the educated and refined Greeks, and then you had the barbarians. And barbarian was a derogatory term used by the Greeks to make fun of the way non-Greeks spoke. It's those people, those barbarians, who make sounds like bar, 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 bar. Those are the barbarians. But this is nothing new. Human pride has always looked down on others, other people, other groups. In the past, Western and European culture looked down on primitive people, uncivilized people. And today, people use progressive or being on the right side of history to suggest superiority, implying that everyone else is backwards and on the wrong side of history. But as the theologian Bobbing points out, we're all human with a consciousness and will, reason and understanding, family and community, tools and ornaments. There's so much difference among the nations that it's impossible to point out that boundary between what is civilized and uncivilized. The point being that we're all human beings fundamentally. We're all human beings. We're all created in the image of God. And it's really just pride that draws these lines of human distinction. And who are the Scythians? We don't read about them much in the Bible. Scythians lived in an area that's now southern Russia around the Black Sea. And the Scythians, interestingly enough, were seen as the wildest of all barbarians, the most barbaric, the most crude, the most anti-Greek. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that the Scythians are little better than wild beasts. And they were the butt of jokes in Greek comedies. So the Jews called them wild beasts and the Greeks despised them. And on top of that, the Scythians were likely slaves. Barbarians, by contrast, were free people. So we have the barbarian free people and the Scythian slaves. Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, wrote this. But though a man be Scythian, looked down upon by the rest of civilization, but though a man be a Scythian, if he has knowledge of God and Christ, is a friend of God. Is a friend of God. That would have been considered so radical, so countercultural in a society where racism was a norm, where there was Jewish supremacy, Greek supremacy, barbarian supremacy was the norm. Who are the Scythians in our society? Who are the Scythians? Maybe it's those people who are racists, the neo-Nazis, the terrorists, people who are part of Al-Qaeda, 
to use the words of Justin Martyr, but though a person be a racist, a neo-Nazi, a terrorist, a registered sex offender, an agent of Al-Qaeda, if they have knowledge of God in Christ, is a friend of God. Is a friend of God. If anyone be in Christ, no matter their background, no matter where they come from, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Finally, slave free is the last pair. While some slaves were better off, decently well off, and even educated, a slave during the Roman Empire was generally at the bottom of society, socially and economically. And as a side note, you might be wondering, well, what does the Bible have to say about slavery? In ancient Israel and later in Rome, slavery was generally economic, not racial, because poor Israelites could voluntarily sell themselves into slavery to pay off debts or to improve their economic condition. However, the slavery in the United States that was practiced, unfortunately, over 100 years ago was forbidden in the Bible. Exodus 21.16. If you're ever wanting to know how do you defend the Bible when people say that, well, the Bible condones slavery, well, the Bible does not condone the kind of slavery practiced in the United States, you need to know Exodus 21.16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone founds in possession of him shall be put to death. Exodus 21.16 couldn't be more clear. If you steal a man and sell them, you're to be put to death. So the Bible condemns kidnapping someone to enslave them, and anyone buying or selling a kidnapped person is given the death penalty. This prohibition against man-stealing, kidnapping, is actually reiterated in the New Testament when Paul gives us examples of those who commit lawless acts, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars. 1 Timothy 1.10. So enslaving others violates God's moral law, just like sexual immorality, homosexuality, and lying violate God's law. But getting back to our passage here, in Christ, even economic distinctions are wiped out. Even those distinctions are wiped out. Onesimus was a runaway slave, and he's described as our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, Colossians 4.9. Onesimus the slave is co-equal with his master and everyone else in the Colossian church, even Epaphras, who first preached the gospel to the Colossian church. They're all one of you, the same in Christ. And today we'd have a different list, but the same principles apply here. Here in the church, in the body of Christ, there is not white or black, Hispanic or Asian, Republican or Democrat, right or left, woke or non-woke, educated or uneducated, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. Distinctions that separate people in the world have no place in the church. No place in the church. Now, all this talk about equality does raise questions. Is Paul getting rid of all distinctions? Is he advocating Marxism or communism? Or that we all have to act the same, dress the same, be the same? Well, in case you're wondering, no, he's not. There's unity in Christ, but not uniformity. Unity in Christ, but not uniformity. In Christ, our place in life, that includes our gender, our ethnicity, our background, our education, who we are, who God has made us to be, 
Those things are still who we are, but now brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Those things are still important, but not ultimately important. But what is our unity in Christ, but not uniformity? What does that unity in Christ look like? Our mission statement here at Risen Hope is worshiping God and welcoming all with gospel truth and neighbor love. Jesus welcomes all repentant sinners, and that, that's the key, repentant, those who have turned away from sin, those who love Jesus more than they love sin. Are we a church that is welcoming to all whom Jesus has welcomed? If Christ has welcomed my brother or sister, no matter what kind of background, no matter what kind of ethnicity or experience, then we must welcome him or her. I'm grateful that we as a church, that the Lord has brought together a diverse group of people. I'm grateful that this church is a church that strives to be welcoming to all people. We as your pastors, we see much grace at work among us. But I also see subtle ways that we might subconsciously, I don't think intentionally, but subconsciously undermine this welcome. Uh, this can happen with cliques. Cliques when we hang out with and connect with people that we're most comfortable with. The Greeks, the Greeks in the Colossian church could have easily just hung out with Greeks, or the Jews would have found it easiest just to befriend the other Jews. So they had to fight against that. And we can unconsciously connect with those who are just like us, those at the same stage of life, those of the same ethnicity, those with the same interests. Nothing wrong with those natural connections, but since we naturally gravitate toward those who are most like us, if you're not constantly working against it, you'll fall into cliques. I know that's true for me, and I've seen it happen in our church. Will you, as brothers and sisters in Christ, take the time and effort and sacrifice to connect with and befriend those who are unlike you, those who might look different from you, those who might vote differently from you? Besides clicks, how about social media? Does your use of social media contribute to unity or contribute to divisiveness and division? Are you thoughtful of others who are different from you? Let us be quick to listen, slow to post, and slow to anger. And I'm preaching this to myself, for I need to hear this as much as anyone else here. So we bring things to a close. When Christ recreates humanity, he unites us under his lordship. We've seen a new creation in Christ, new image in Christ, and now a new unity in Christ. And that's how Paul sums up this section. He sums it up this way. But Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. Christ is all that matters. He is all. He is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, the sum, the center, the circumference. And so is he everything to you? Is he, is he your primary and most important part of your identity? Does everything else have to take a back seat? Does everything else take a back seat? Your heritage, your culture, your ethnicity, your skin color, your education, everything else of who you are, does that take a back seat? In the sports world, people love to admire greatness. When they see greatness, they'll sometimes call an athlete the greatest of all time. 
as an acronym, it spells out GOAT, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time, GOAT. Athletes come and go, though, and records are made to be broken. So the GOAT of today will be overtaken by the GOAT of tomorrow. But there is only one who can claim that title. Jesus and Jesus alone is the greatest of all time. He is the one who is the greatest of all time. It's not, he's not just all we need. He's all we have. He's all we want. He's in every one of us as well, young and old, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, immigrant, citizen, white, black, Asian, Hispanic. He's in all of us, and so we must live like it. We must live like citizens of a new country where we belong to Jesus and we love the people of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would pour out your spirit. Lord, we know the truth, but we lack the power to walk it out in our daily lives. So pray that you would give us the power from on high, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, now at work within us. Help us, Lord, to be renewed day by day, renewed in our minds, renewed in our hearts, renewed in our actions, that we might be more like Jesus. And that would show itself in how we relate to one another, that we would be one people united under one Lord and one Savior, Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. 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 Church, as we head out this morning, I just want to leave you with this passage from Ephesians. It's a parallel passage, but I hope it once again just encourages you uh, to live for Jesus this week, to be renewed in your minds and hearts and to know that we are united together with all the diversity, with all the beauty that, uh, of this church. We are united together in Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Amen. Amen.